Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as many of you know, was a Lutheran pastor who was arrested for his resistance to the Nazi regime. After two years in prison and just 11 days before his concentration camp was liberated by the Allied forces, Bonhoeffer was executed, hung for treason, April 1945. His last words were simply, this is the end for me. For me, this is the beginning of life. A military doctor who watched Bonhoeffer kneeling in prayer before the execution, before they came to take him, said he had never seen a man so wholly surrendered to the will of God. And with his characteristic radical precision in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer introduces his thoughts on following Jesus with these words. He says, when Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. His life and his martyrdom are a vivid 20th century witness to our text this morning from Luke 14. In these parables, which we've been looking at, it's important to remember that Jesus has set his face all the way back in Luke chapter 9. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knows that he's going there to die. Nevertheless, he's become something of a sensation, a charismatic figure. And he's beginning to attract attention. Luke says in the opening verse of our text, verse 25, that large or great crowds accompanied him. So imagine the scene. 
as he heads toward the city. You have this miracle-working prophet around whom all this messianic fervor is beginning to swell, and he's heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. Surely, this is the one who's about to usher in the long-promised kingdom of God. But of course, Jesus knows that the overwhelming majority of this buzz is for the wrong reasons. That he's no starry-eyed political messiah. He knows that, in fact, there is going to be blood and violence and revolution in Jerusalem, but the crowds are clueless as to the form that it's going to take. But the crowds follow nonetheless. And Jesus rides on. And we'll look at the text then under four headings. The call, the tower builder, the king in the summary. The call, the tower builder, the king, and the summary. So first the call. Jesus turns to the crowds, large crowds, great crowds. And in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine anything more designed to dampen the enthusiasm and to shrink the size of the crowds than that one sentence? Now, can you imagine any public figure in history speaking to a fawning crowd and demanding anything so ruthless? I mean, let's be frank. This appears to be an utterly inhumane demand. You must, Jesus says. He considers this non-negotiable. You must hate. And then he says to his adoring fan base, as if intending to dig the knife in as deep as he can, deep down into our natural human affections. Then Jesus sticks the knife in and then he piles up the severed relations. Father, mother, wife, children. This is Abrahamic. This is Abraham sacrificing Isaac again. Children, brothers, sisters, and for good measure, yes, it's not excluded. You must hate even your own life. Now, some caveats. Of course, Jesus, who says, insists, in fact, that we love even our enemies, is not calling for the literal hatred of our families and our lives. In fact, in Matthew, where he makes the same remark, it says, anyone who does not love me more than father or mother or children or brothers and sisters cannot be my disciple. So it's often correctly pointed out that hate here means something like love less. But before we breathe a sigh of relief, 
uh, we need to see clearly what Jesus and following him entails and what the Lord is getting at here. This is a statement from the Lord about commitment and loyalty. Jesus is saying this, you must disavow your family as being the primary allegiance of your life. Now that sounds a little tougher than just love less, but that's clearly what he intends here. He knows that those in the crowd, like all human beings, all reasonably adjusted human beings anyway, he knows they're going to have a natural and deep and strong affection for their families. So what's he doing? He's challenging them precisely at that point, precisely at the point where we praise people. Jesus challenges them. You know, if he had only given a brief lecture on the social value and utility of family values here, he would have had even greater crowds. But Jesus knows that the family, good as it is, is one of history's greatest idols. There are really three great idols that Jesus goes after in his ministry. One is the state, the Roman state, and the idea of political revolution. The other is wealth. And the third is the family or the kingdom of the family and the self. His own disposition, the incarnate Son of God's own disposition to his mother, reflects this kind of single-minded focus on the kingdom. When he's told... Your mother and your brothers are outside. What does he say? Great. I always love to see my mom bring her in. He says, who is my mother and brother and sister? The one who does the will of God, he continues, that one is my mother and my brother and my sister. Now, this does not make for a good Mother's Day card. And when someone in the crowd says, Blessed is the womb which bore you and the breasts at which you were weaned, what does he say? You know, Jesus never takes the platitude bites. Do not set Jesus up with platitudes. He says, Blessed rather is the one who hears the word of God and does it. My lands, the person must have been thinking, Look, I was just commending your mother. What's... What's with this? What's with it is this. Jesus refuses to assimilate his family ties to the kingdom of God. And that's because, and we're so used to this, I don't think we see the, rat, the sharpness of it. That's because Jesus is establishing a new family. A new humanity. A thing called the body of Christ, the church. And what he... he what he teaches here is that his family, this new family, must take precedence over one's natural biological family. Now, we, we use the terms with one another, brother or sister, hello brother, hello sister. But we 
it often can become sort of just a, a sort of a greeting, like Mr. or Mrs. almost. But the ancient Romans noticed that the Christians called one another brother and sister. They thought this was kind of odd and strange that, that they thought they were a new family. They're obviously not a family. But Jesus came to establish a new family, and thus the language about his own mother and about his own family. He who hears the word of God, who does the will of God, that one is my mother and my brother. So, we could put this this way. This family right here in this room, this family is more important than your biological family. If this text doesn't mean at least that, then we're not hearing it at all. I would suggest that almost no one actually believes this in practice. How could the text mean anything less than that? Turns out Jesus, in fact, is giving a little family values lecture here. It's just not the one we thought he'd give. You're not going to hear it at any political convention. This doesn't mean he didn't love his mother. He loved her better than any son ever loved a mother. But the shape of that human love is relativized deeply. It's subordinated to the kingdom. The covenant, Jesus is saying, the covenant is stronger than blood. This is what, because the family is an idol. It has to be, Jesus has to go at it this way. So once we understand that Jesus is not talking about literal hatred, the sharpness of what he's saying remains. Now, there are two things that Jesus' statement here won't allow. And I think we're tempted with these two things, or, we, or easily we fall into them. We, we realize Jesus doesn't literally want us to hate our families and our lives. So we have sort of two moves that we tend to make in the face of a text like this. The first is the notion that our love and affection for our family can be almost supreme as long as we love Jesus a little more. You know, this is the God first, family second thing. If Jesus edges out our family in a horse race, a photo finish, we think that's pretty good, and we've really heard the challenge of the text. Beloved, that is not the case at all. This is not a put Jesus first in your life text, although it is that in the most trivial kinds of ways. That's not going to do. Jesus is saying this. Your allegiance to me and my kingdom must be so radical that it's almost as though you hated your family. Those are shocking words. Evaluate yourself in the light of those words. Your allegiance to me must be so radical that it's almost as though you hated your family. Your family can be second, to be sure, but it's a really distant second. Second. 
He's saying that love for family, precisely love for family, entails tearing it from its privileged and idolatrous place. Doing this is part of loving your family the way Jesus defines it. He says, you can't leave your family in a place of competition with me. If you do, the text says, you've disqualified yourself from being a disciple. Now, all your friends and neighbors will think you're a wonderful Christian. They'll virtually equate being a wonderful Christian with being a family man. That's the American way. Jesus says, don't don't be deceived by appearances. If your family is first or struggling with me for competition, it's not that you're a poor disciple. You're not a disciple at all, he says. These are some of the most stunning words ever uttered on the planet. And the second thing Jesus won't allow here is equating. This is the second move I think we make once we hear the text. We equate our love for our family with our love for his kingdom. So read verse 26 again. And ask yourself there, if we're obeying the text, if we simply equate our service to Jesus with our service to our families. Imagine someone in the crowd standing up and saying, but Jesus, I love you by loving my family. Who's not heard that before? I love you by loving my family. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we say. To say that is to eviscerate verse 26 of any meaning whatsoever. Jesus simply doesn't allow it. So, again, I I want to be clear. We are to love our families. But the framework for that is one where they know, your children knows, your spouse knows, your family knows that our first allegiance is to something which transcends them. And which will endure long after they're gone. Our families can be taken from us tonight and we will still be called to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. But the family, the family, the brothers and sisters which Jesus is creating, the new family of the church, it's the only enduring family. This is a family values text. It's the indes- this is the indestructible family, the eschatological family. In the kingdom, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The biological family, puff, disappears. And even the very longest human love doesn't last very long. The family of God endures forever. It is actually silly, in Jesus' view, for them to compete with one another for, for one's affection. Now, I know these are very, very hard words. Very hard words. We, we have all sorts of ways of making them less hard. But Jesus is very serious. He says something akin to this. On seven, count them seven times in the Gospels, he says this. So this is not a marginal aspect of Jesus' teaching. This is a basic entry requirement. If you don't do this, you can't be a disciple. 
So you, you have to check this box to get in the door, he tells the crowds. He knows what he is up against when it comes to the family as competition for the kingdom of God. Again, I want to notice, point you to the absoluteness of the words. He doesn't say that if you won't do this, you can be a disciple, but on a lower level. He says, you can't be my disciple without this. Remember, he's going to Jerusalem, and what he's reminding us of is crucifixion is the entry requirement for following Jesus. Ruthless commitment. So those are the words. And you know what's happened historically with these words, where they're not just ignored or domesticated in some of the ways I've suggested? The words have been taken uh, by many, even in the Christian tradition, as simply being impossible to obey. At least for normal people. And because they seemed harsh, this led the medieval church to apply these sayings to monks and maybe certain types of priests, but not to the rank and family rank and file ordinary family man, not to Joe the disciple. But that's not going to do. In fact, these, um, these types of texts from Jesus became known in the medieval church as evangelical, meaning gospel-based, councils of perfection. So they weren't for the ordinary Christian. They were for the, the, the monk or the ascetic or, or the consecrated uh, Nuns, maybe called to a life of virginity or celibacy, those people could, could take these counsels and use them to move on to perfection. But the rank and file in, in, the, in the flock, I mean, they've got jobs, they've got families, they have to take care of these things. Surely Jesus cannot mean these words for them. But that's not going to do either, because who's Jesus addressing? There are no monks in Jesus' crowd, he's addressing the crowds. He's addressing the rank of file, and he addresses them with words like, any one of you. So, just when you think he couldn't get a little more ruthless, he sums it up in verse 26, where he says, you must hate or love less or disavow your primary allegiance to your very life. So, this is a call to repudiate your very life. Notice, Jesus doesn't say that we have to repudiate just our sins or just the bad parts of our life while we celebrate our accomplishments. No, he says you have to repudiate your very life. And in verse 27, he shows us what it entails. He says, again, again, anyone, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Of course, this gets diluted as well, right, when we talk about uh, a troublesome relative or a difficult situation or a difficult colleague as a cross that we have to bear. Jesus' crowd would have actually seen men lashed and bleeding under the Roman regime, carrying their own crosses on the way to their own executions. Precisely what Jesus is about to do and what the crowds are oblivious to. And so again, the point is simple and bracing. If you want to follow me, you need to remember where I'm going. I'm going into that city and you need to be ready to do what I'm going to do and that is die a gruesome death. 
It's as if he's saying to the masses, look, I know this is all an interesting religious sideshow for some of you, but if you want to be my disciples, you have got to be ready for Roman crucifixion because you're going to go where I go. The force of this as well, I think, would be better felt by us if instead of wearing crosses, we wore little electric chairs around our necks. Because the cross is a wonderful thing. So it's a wonderful symbol. But it has tended to lose its cultural force, its sharpness, its disgusting, repellent, perverse effect that it's supposed to have on people. To the culture at large, it means something like he or she's trying to be a nice person or they go to a church on Sunday. But the electric chair, now that's a conversation starter. The word in the text for bearing the cross in verse uh, 27 is in the present text. It means to continually bear the cross. It's what Paul refers to when he says, I die daily. And John Calvin famously called um, the life of Christ a perpetual cross. And he went on to describe the Christian life as a perpetual state of self-denial. Self-denial, of course, is, is different than Denying oneself a pleasure or this or that, it, it, it goes to a denial of the self itself. And so there's, so there's these numerous daily crucifixions, tiny acts of martyrdom that we're called to every day, which will prepare us and will prepare the disciples of Jesus for real martyrdom should they face it. We may not be called to actual martyrdom. But you know what? We, that's, that's almost certainly true for those of us who live here, at least in the foreseeable future. But many of those in your enduring family, your indestructible family, your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers are being martyred this very hour all along, all over the world. That would be a chief concern of ours if we took this notion of family as serious as Jesus took it. We may not be called to that, but we are all called together into the substance of the thing. To daily dying. There's no discipleship, Jesus says, without that. And against this backdrop, he tells two short parables. They're pretty self-explanatory, so I'll be brief here. Uh, the first one starts in verse 28 about a tower builder. Man wants to build a tower. Jesus says he should sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. Of course, the key here is that phrase, first, first, he should sit down and count or estimate the cost. So why is Jesus telling this parable here? He wants the crowds to enter into some clear-eyed, sober deliberation. He wants you and I to be under no illusions about what Christianity and following him is or what it requires. Grace isn't cheap. 
It isn't free, Bonhoeffer said. The Bonhoeffer quote is, grace isn't free. Uh, no, it, it is. It is it's, he say, Bonhoeffer said, grace is free, but it isn't cheap. That's what he said. Grace is free, but it isn't cheap. It will cost you everything. And Jesus is reminding us of that here. Now, this can seem like a grim passage, but it's, it's really not. I mean, it's a very sober passage. There's a darkness hanging over Jesus' short-term days. Um, and, you know, the shadow of the cross is there. But remember, Jesus told a parable earlier about the treasure hidden in the field and about the pearl discovered by the merchant. And there he made the point that a person gladly would sell everything they have gladly would renounce everything they have and make this exchange because it's a joyful exchange. In fact, it's a rational exchange. It's a logical exchange. Here he's saying, look, the joy of this exchange, the urgency of the call doesn't diminish the fact that we need to deliberate daily about whether we want the exchange to occur. Self for the kingdom. So the second parable in verse 31 and 32, Jesus asked the crowds, what king going out to encounter another king, you know, is not going to sit down and figure out if he has enough men to oppose the other king who has twice as many men. But again, the, the point here is the repetition of the idea of sitting down, deliberating. And look, this is not a one-time thing. I think we all know this, but... It needs to be said clearly, following Jesus requires intent. It requires choice. It requires determination. It requires cutting off alternative options. It requires strenuous effort, sitting down, calculating. We're not disciples because of our effort, but we are not disciples without human effort. And this effort is not periodic volunteer work at our own convenience. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. I think I've used it before. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to the crowds here. You can leave or you can be crucified. What you can't do is treat me as if I'm moderately important. You need to engage these parables, say, these short little parables, for following me as if you would engage for going to war. And so he summarizes in verse 33, In the same way, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Give up everything is translated renounce in some, uh, some translations. So, this gives us a little more insight into what Jesus said earlier. Here we can see that the hatred or the loving less of husband, wife, mother, father, children, that hatred means renunciation. Anyone who does not renounce everything he has, you have to renounce your family if you're going to hold your relationship to it in the right way. You have to renounce your wife. You have to renounce your children. You have to renounce your stuff. 
You have to renounce it every hour of every day. You are in a perpetual state of dying to it and renouncing it and then receiving it back as gift with open and loosely held hands. Otherwise, it quickly becomes an idol. These are very hard words. I feel it as much as I hope some of you do. To renounce here, everything one has means, the word means to bid farewell to, to give up a claim to. There is no one in the history of the world who has said things like this. There there are no evasions left. Attachment to Jesus Christ is the renunciation of all else, especially one's family and one's life. What precisely does Jesus think the resources are for doing this in the text? It's not like we do it once or we even do it well. And it's taken care of. The context suggests that it's, it's precisely the, re, the renouncing, the bidding farewell, which Jesus consini- considers the necessary condition, the sufficient condition for discipleship. This renunciation is the cost of discipleship. What does following Jesus cost? Everything. Especially the good things. You know, Bonhoeffer, after telling us that when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die, he offers these words of encouragement. He says, Jesus asks nothing of us without giving us the strength to perform it. That's what those earlier parables about the, 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 the pearl are about and the hidden treasure. The kingdom is, an, is a joyful gift. And this renunciation is what unleashes the power of the kingdom in our lives. And the power of the kingdom is nothing less than the power of the cross or the power of the electric chair. The power of the electric chair in your life. If your mother and your father and your wife and your children and your siblings, your brothers and sisters, see this kind of renunciation in your life, albeit we do it weekly and we stumble and we have to start over, but if they see it, if they're taught it, if it's lived, you will have loved them well indeed. And if they don't see it, you can win every award for American parenting available, and you will be an idolater. But if they see this, you will have loved them well indeed. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be executed. He's saying to you and I, don't put your hand on the plow to follow me if you're going to be looking back over your shoulder. Amen.